If I'd known what was going to happen when I stood in front of my fraternity brothers to give a speech during a house meeting my freshman year, I never would have done it. I got up in front of the closest friends I'd made during that year at Cornell University, opened my mouth to start speaking, and froze from stage fright. I have no memory of what I said, and needless to say, I did not win the election. Twelve years later, I took great pleasure in showing off my oratory skills in front of some of those same people, giving a wedding toast for one of my best friends. My laugh lines included jokes about the New York City subway system and wainscoting, and I punctuated the final line of my speech about how he'd once said he'd know he was an adult when he started using placemats by presenting him with a set of placemats I'd bought at a dollar store in Queens. So how did I get over my stage fright? I'm Jake Williams, and this is my career story. The afternoon of that awful speech, a fraternity brother I will forever remain indebted to advised me that I should face my fears head on. He told me to make a demo tape to get on the air at the student-run radio station WVBR, where I could talk to an audience without ever having to face them. It took me months of mangling lines like, you're listening to Real Rock Radio, WVBR-FM, and that was Collective Soul with December, which topped Billboard's Mainstream Rock Tracks chart on this day in 1995, before I finally landed my first shift on the airwaves. It was both awful and incredible at the same time. I was thrilled to be on the air, but every time I turned on the microphone and saw the on-air sign light up, I got scared. I still hate listening to my air check tapes because I can hear the tension in my voice as it rose above my normal conversational voice, the nerves apparent in every word. Being naturally introverted, I still get that feeling now, more than 20 years later, especially when I'm being interviewed. But rather than give up, I pressed on, taking whatever shifts I could get, playing modern and classic rock, like Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop, off the band's 1977 album Rumors, which topped the Billboard charts, and eventually I ended up spending enough time behind a microphone, first as a DJ and later giving news and sports updates, that WVBR's studios became a second home during the final three years of my college career. The opportunity to read a 90-second sports editorial every weeknight at 6 presented me the perfect opportunity to hone my skills and focus as a writer, something I'd never managed to do in a classroom. Like so many of my industry colleagues who came of age in the 1990s, I never missed watching Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann do SportsCenter. Grab yourself something to eat, sit back and relax. No, 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 I mean, I mean really relax. Yeah, that's it. SportsCenter, next. Hello and welcome from World Headquarters. It's the big show and alongside my tag team partner, Dan Patrick. After graduating, I went to work at ESPN and then got a job as a producer at Sporting News Radio. There I fielded listener calls, produced short audio pieces, steered our story coverage, and sometimes took to the mic to offer, to our hundreds of thousands of listeners, my take on some of the biggest sports conversations of the day. The NBA's biggest star, Allen Iverson, missing practice, Mike Tyson on his upcoming fight with Lennox Lewis, and Indianapolis Colts coach Jim Mora after one of the worst games of Peyton Manning's career. I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game. Not, a, not, not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. 
I mean, how silly is that? Lynx is a conqueror. No, I'm Alexander. He's no Alexander. I'm the best ever. There's no one that can match me. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious. I want your heart. I want to eat his children. When you turn the ball over five times, four interceptions, one for a touchdown, three others in field position to set up touchdowns, that was a disgraceful performance. We threw that game. We gave it away. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. I then went to journalism school at the University of Missouri to pursue a newspaper career, hoping, like so many others, to follow a path similar to two former sports writers who were busy remaking how sports and later political television would be produced. Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser, who've now been doing Pardon the Interruption on ESPN for nearly 20 years. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Tony, what do you think hurts worse? Nipple piercing or a facial tattoo? Tony Kornheiser. You know, actually, the nipple piercing didn't hurt nearly as much as I thought. It was because I'm an introvert who, when I was younger, suffered horribly from stage fright and lacked confidence in my oral and written communication skills that I pursued a career in which my main responsibilities involved interviewing people and writing about them. And in fact, my very first story as a sports writer for the Columbia Missourian changed my life. On Labor Day weekend 2002, when the Eminem show, which spawned this number one Hot 100 track, Lose Yourself, was Billboard's top-selling album, I was assigned to cover the Heart of America Marathon. I don't remember much about the race itself. 70 degree temperatures with 90% humidity at 6 a.m. and the clouds of sand the runners kicked up as they headed uphill from the banks of the Missouri River toward downtown Columbia. It's the race's aftermath that remains etched in my brain. As the top men's finishers wearily lowered themselves into tubs of ice, I heard one say, that was nasty, wasn't it? Another told me he'd sworn off the race after running it 11 years earlier and grimaced as he said, I'll never do this again, again. Having collected all the material I needed for my story, I turned to leave. As I did, the men's winner asked me this question, am I gonna see you in the race next year? He did not. I didn't run the race in 2003, but neither did he. However, his question, and the freshman 15 I gained during my first semester of grad school, inspired me to take up running in earnest. Seven years later, I wrote a series of columns for a local Long Island newspaper about training for my first half marathon. I've since run eight more, along with five full marathons. Like pursuing a career in defiance of my stage fright and lack of confidence in my communication skills, one of my proudest accomplishments is finding the mental fortitude to complete those marathons, even though I felt physically spent well before the finish line of any of them. But, as it took several years for me to get from being asked about running a marathon to actually signing up for one, I also took a roundabout path from journalism school to newspaper reporter. While at Missouri, I took a professional interest in politics and political communications, particularly in the way presidential politics was covered. No show personified this change better than Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and his skewering of Howard Dean, who'd been the Democratic frontrunner heading into the 2004 Iowa caucus. As you can imagine, the post-caucus mood at Dean's Iowa headquarters was somber. Well, the mood should have been somber. Instead, Dean took the stage with Senator and personal valet Tom Harkin and attempted to rally the troops. You know something? If you had told us one year ago that we were going to come in third in Iowa, we would have given anything for that. Of course, if you had told him that two weeks ago, he would have ripped your off. After graduating in 2005, when Green Day's holiday topped the Billboard charts, I did some communications work for some local campaigns in New York City, working as a press secretary, writing policy papers, 
and managing a half a million dollar television advertising budget before heading off to New Hampshire. In the shadow of the old state capitol, where Lincoln once called on a house divided to stand together, where common hopes and common dreams still live, I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. There, I knocked on doors and cold-called voters for President Obama's 2008 Democratic primary campaign. Not only did I have to deal with being called a communist and having more doors than I can count shut in my face, I also had to be prepared to fully answer people's policy questions, be it about economics, healthcare, jobs, or any other issue. Two months into my time in Manchester, I received an offer to work as a reporter at a small company that ran four weekly newspapers on Long Island. With the power of hindsight, I might have made a different decision. But at the time, working a newspaper seemed like it would offer more job security than a campaign nobody at the time expected to last past Super Tuesday. My interview subjects ranged from politicians to scientists to high school athletes, and I wrote everything from features and long-form news articles to editorials and personal essays. But as the calendar moved from 2008 into 2009, I started to see the writing on the wall. Our company was not selling as much ad space, and as a result, our newspapers started getting thinner. And the company I worked for was not alone. Newspapers across the country were dealing with a similar upheaval, as discussed in this 2009 story from Democracy Now! That's a pretty amazing story. Rocky Mountain News closing up. You've got the Minneapolis Star Tribune in bankruptcy, uh, the Chicago Tribune, the Philadelphia Inquirer, San Francisco Chronicles in deep trouble, even the New York Times. Yeah, no, the newspaper industry is going through a major, major upheaval uh, in, these, in these last few days. With less revenue coming in, Newspaper publishers started looking to make cuts to keep their businesses afloat if possible. And in 2010, the company I worked for shuttered one of its four papers and laid off several reporters, myself included. However, this career turn was a blessing in disguise. On March 8, 2011, the 65th birthday of former Eagles bassist Randy Meisner, here playing on Life in the Fast Lane, I started as a researcher at CBS Sports Network during the NCAA men's basketball tournament. I was eventually promoted to writer, where I wrote scripts for the network's NFL shows and for several vignettes, including this piece for CBS Sports Network's Super Bowl 48 coverage. Nearly half the Seattle Seahawks roster was 10 years old or younger when Peyton Manning played in his first NFL season back in 1998. Eight years later, while Manning and the Indianapolis Colts were celebrating a Super Bowl championship, Russell Wilson, Golden Tate, Richard Sherman and company were busy planning for driving exams, proms and high school graduations. At an average age of 26.4 years, Seattle is the second youngest Super Bowl team in NFL history. Two years later, I traveled to San Francisco for our live Super Bowl week coverage, where this research nugget earned me a live shout out from CBS Sports Network anchor, Adam Shine. Neither the Oakland Raiders, okay, or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, all right, they haven't won a playoff game since they both appeared in the Super Bowl, which is an amazing nugget. Great job by our guy, Jake, in research. Boy, Jake. Upon our return from the Super Bowl, I helped build the CBS Sports News team. The three of us in our newly founded department helped steer all of CBS Sports editorial coverage of all off-field events, both for our studio and game broadcast crews. My biggest accomplishment of this period was an obituary I wrote and co-produced to former New England Patriot Aaron Hernandez on April 19, 2017, 
within a few hours after Massachusetts authorities said he'd been found dead in his prison cell from an apparent suicide. Aaron Hernandez began his football career in Bristol, Connecticut. When he was a boy, his father pushed him to practice constantly in the hopes of making his childhood dreams of becoming a professional athlete come true. He took his first step toward that goal 10 years ago when he left his hometown to play tight end for the Florida Gators. In 2010, he and fellow tight end Rob Gronkowski, each just 20 years old, were drafted into the NFL by the New England Patriots. The two tight ends looked primed for years of offensive dominance and in just their second season together, they helped lead the Patriots to a Super Bowl appearance. The future could not have seemed brighter, but for Hernandez, the seeds of trouble had been planted long before. During his time in Gainesville, Hernandez was suspended for marijuana use, was involved in a fight in an off-campus restaurant, and was one of four players questioned about a shooting outside a club. Hernandez allegedly fit the description of a person who fired five shots into a car, wounding two passengers in that incident. No charges were ever filed against him. Given the chance to play professional football, less than a two-hour drive from his childhood home, he rewarded the Patriots, trusted him with two prolific seasons. The Patriots would then reward him just before the 2012 season with a five-year, $40 million contract. That would be the last season of his NFL career. Less than 10 months after signing the contract, Hernandez was charged with killing Odin Lloyd. While awaiting trial in Lloyd's murder, Hernandez was also charged in May 2014 with the deaths of two people killed in a 2012 drive-by shooting outside a Boston nightclub. In April 2015, Hernandez was found guilty of first-degree murder in Lloyd's death and sentenced to life in prison without parole. And then just this past Friday, he was found not guilty in the Boston double murder. Without acquittal, Hernandez's attorneys were expected to turn their attention to appealing the verdict in the Odin Lloyd case. However, early Wednesday morning, Hernandez was found dead in his prison cell of an apparent suicide. According to the Massachusetts Department of Corrections, Hernandez hanged himself with a bedsheet attached to a window in his cell. Aaron Hernandez was 27. I also manage CBS Sports Legacy Project, prioritizing subjects, archiving clip reels, and editing scripts to build the network's obituary library. In July 2017, shortly after our son was born, I left CBS to fulfill a promise I'd made to my wife years before, that eventually we would move to California, near where she grew up in the East Bay town of Danville, about 30 miles east of San Francisco. I went to work as a freelance producer and news writer at KCBS, an all-news radio station in San Francisco. There I helped coordinate our breaking news coverage of the 2018 California wildfires, the state's primary elections, and the deadly shootings at YouTube headquarters and the veterans' home of California in Yountville. I also booked on-air interviews with our news anchors and wrote the guest introductions and questions. However, shortly after I started, the station's ownership changed hands. Management changes followed, and at that time I returned to CBS Sports as a freelancer. That recently ended, and while I'm working on this podcast, I'm also looking for a new opportunity. Like Schubert's Symphony No. 8, my career path is unfinished.